I don't know about you, Joel, but that was a fascinating episode. Um, personally, no offense to our previous guests, we value, I value you so much. For me personally, it's definitely one of my, my favorite episodes. It was yeah. a, an important um, episode and uh, things that we don't speak about enough in the Bitcoin space or in any other space, to be honest. So um, for me, it was great and fascinating because we spoke about uh, communities privilege black in the bitcoin space as well and uh joelle what did you take away from it it was it was um at one point i, I wouldn't say it felt um all over the place but you know we covered so many different aspects so that was that was just fascinating to listen to honestly and i did have a long day today but i was still able to you know mentally keep up and thought oh I, i've actually never thought about these little um things that we spoke about so it's it's also definitely a top three episode for me up there um, and I'm looking forward to editing this one. And I don't want to spare any more time for the listeners. Um, have fun with this one with Dadu from the Bitcoin Source podcast. Hello, fellow rabbit hole dwellers. Welcome back to yet another episode of Rabbit Hole Stories. Today, we've got Dadu from the Bitcoin Source. And according to your Twitter, buddy, you're building something involving Bitcoin. And I'm curious to know what that is. So welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you on. Um, and we're looking forward to going down your Bitcoin rabbit hole and to discover how it is that you discovered it, why you stayed and what is it you're doing now and see what we can uh, work out between the three of us in that journey of yours. So Please, sir, uh, do you want to introduce yourself a bit more or should we just go straight down your Bitcoin rabbit hole? You choose. Yeah, so I'll introduce myself a little briefly, even though you guys did a pretty good job. Um, once again, my name is Daru. I am the founder and host of the Bitcoin Source, which is a Bitcoin podcast. I also do um, content writing within the Bitcoin space, customer support and educational um, stuff you know, based around blockchain technology and Bitcoin. My rabbit hole story, and also too, I want to thank you guys for having me on. This is an honor. My rabbit hole story really started way, way, way back in 2017. At that time, I was in the traditional banking financial industry. So um, when I got out of uni, as they say in the UK or university in America, um, my major was in business management. And then I eventually got myself into the finance world, worked at JP Morgan Chase, State Street Bank. And while I was there around 2016, 2017, of course, Bitcoin had been out for some time. I befriended an engineer there that was like, oh, you should uh, invest in Bitcoin. And at that time, of course, as we know, being a banker, being in the mutual fund space, Bitcoin was like super taboo at the time. So she was like, uh, buy $10 of it. I think it was Coinbase at the time, buy 10 bucks. She didn't really give me like an elaborate breakdown of like sovereign wealth and, you know, it being the most secure digital asset you could ever own. Like I didn't get into any of that yet. Um, I just bought it and I kind of like forgot about it for a while. I was like, okay, I bought some, I guess some early and, you know, the bull run was kind of like picking up at that time and some years flew by and I really didn't pay attention to it again until the pandemic during the lockdown. And just from me having like this financial savvy, I was just looking at the news and like paying attention to the markets. And I realized like, wait, why are all these CEOs quitting? Why are all these major hedge fund managers selling off all their shares of Apple stock and Amazon stock, stuff that you would think is like very lucrative because everybody was ordering on Amazon at the time. And then you look and realize like, wait, they're buying Bitcoin. 
a hedge against inflation. Like that's when I heard the hedge against inflation term, like floating around like crazy. Right. So now it piqued my interest. I'm like, oh, if these guys who are multimillionaires are doing it, I need to pay attention to this from there because I was in the lockdown. Um, I had nothing but time. So that's when I really delved into heavy reading um, the Bitcoin standard. I read some stuff from Gigi and I just immersed myself inside of um, clubhouse rooms with the Black Bitcoin Billionaires Clubhouse, which is I think it has 160 plus members at this point. And I really learned a lot about Bitcoin, um, you know, throughout that time. And that's what really like got me started in my orange pill journey. Hey, that's a brilliant journey. And um, one thing that struck me was your um, availability of time to study um, Bitcoin a little bit more. And that's one thing that we kind of all starved off uh, in a way um, yeah. by design or whatever you want to call it. But um, it's one of those things that you need to dedicate some time in order to understand Bitcoin. And in the rat race that we all kind of live in, it's hard to try and find that that time, right? Because once I finish work, I've got come home I've got my wife and child there's dinner to be had I need to look after this and that and the other and we're, we're, we're kind of um, in this perpetual kind of rabbit hole I'm sorry um, hamsters wheel and um, how, how do you think that we can um, find the time and respect our time in order to um, grow and understand not only our, uh, ourselves a bit more but things that are valuable in society I know it's a deep and dark that's a deep yeah, uh, yeah. question, but um, it's, it's something I've been thinking about for some time now. And I'm just wondering whether you've had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I think as a Bitcoiner, like a lot of times people outside of the box think that we can be pontificating on how important this asset is and why this needs to be something that you need to be involved in. And I think for myself, I really took the time because it was important and I felt like it was something that needed to be had. Like my child, my first daughter was born in, you know, 2021. So I was like, kind of like in a space where I was like, oh, I need to kind of figure out what I'm going to do. How am I going to have like some generational wealth? So um, it kind of was like perfect timing for me. I already went through the horseshoe of like the shit coin rabbit hole from 2017 to 2020. I was like dibbling and dabbling and kind of figuring out my bearings. And then I realized like, wait a minute, all of these like ICOs are sketchy. All of these things are like fluctuating. And then I'm like, wait a minute, there's backdoors. Ethereum is kind of based around the developer model. There's like a founder, there's someone that can be coerced or bribed. And I'm like, wait a minute, Bitcoin doesn't have a founder. There is no, I mean, we have Satoshi, but that is a anomaly, right? We don't really know who that person or persons is. And that kind of gave me more confidence to say like, all right, let me start to immerse myself heavy into the podcast space and start listening to um, what Bitcoin did was a big instrumental part of my initial journey. Um, you guys, I've listened to a lot of your stories and it's always interesting because I feel back then in 2020, there was a lot of podcasts, but there are like so many now. And it, people kind of like get upset about that if they're podcasters, but I think it's good because you get multiple aspects or perspectives on the asset from different people. And I always think that uh, Bitcoin is one of those things where it becomes like a lifelong study. It's not something that you just learn about for five minutes and then you kind of forget about it. It becomes like a, a part of your lifestyle if you're really interested in it. So um, to answer your question, I just think that... Um, Understanding Bitcoin, learning about Bitcoin has to become a part of like your daily habits for you to really understand how paradigm shifting this this asset truly is. It's um, great to hear you say about uh, or mention and bring up the um, 
amount of podcasts there are out there and I see it over Twitter and Nosta you know people are divided as to whether or not there are too much uh, Bitcoin podcasts out there and of course um, as a, a biased opinion of mine I don't think there are because I think it's important to one of the reasons why we started this podcast was we wanted to provide um, signal um, for the UK and, and Europe and you know, for me, my voice um, might resonate with um, people. Joelle's might as well, because you know we both bring something different into the podcast in in different ways. And I think it's important that we need to um, signal to people that are likely to hear our voices. And I'm I'm forever trying to find um, the language for people to sort of hear and understand what the message is behind Bitcoin. But I, I can only reach so far. Um, yeah. And I can only con uh, connect with, um, you know, a limited amount of people because, you know, people are um, judgmental. They they, 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 they might uh, object to some of the things I've got to say. But that's the magic thing about Bitcoin is that it doesn't matter really what you say, what your message is. If you've got the intention of sort of communicating Bitcoin and sort of inviting them over to your space, I think that's where the value is. Um, and I'm wondering whether you share that opinion and whether or not there is any particular um, voice that you're trying to put out there to resonate with with anyone in particular um, and what, trying, what kind of signal you're trying to put out there for people to sort of grasp and come over to Bitcoin? Yeah, most definitely. Um, awesome question, by the way. So for me, I have a funny backstory, right? So initially I was really doing a lot of writing in the space before I even got into Bitcoin. I was always a writer. Um, I started writing really hardcore in 2015, like as a freelancer. And I was like, how do I get proof of work? How do I prove that I actually have a voice in this space? Because you can kind of be drowned out by so many different people, especially when you're coming in at my time in 2017. It seems to me that when the price is shooting up, you have all these people coming in that think they're fancy. They know everything about Bitcoin. So when you become a hardcore Bitcoiner, you start to look at people like kind of shady, like, okay, here comes this new cohort of people that think they know Bitcoin, right? So I had to have that initial like hazing phase. So I was like, okay, for me to really prove myself, I'm going to start to write for Bitcoin magazine. So I started writing for Bitcoin magazine. I did like eight articles for them. And that's how I was able to kind of find out who my audience was via Twitter, because when I would post the article or Bitcoin magazine would post the article, I would look at the analytics. I would look at who was retweeting it, who was liking it. And this was a precursor to my podcast, of course. But I think that for me, I found that because I write for the African-American community, I write for um, disenfranchised communities or underserved communities um, through Black Bitcoin billionaires, I found that that niche was kind of a niche where outside of Clubhouse or like these social media audio apps, a lot of people were still very hungry for this information coming from diverse um, multicultural communities. And I found that for me personally, the Bitcoin source has been one of those avenues for people. Of course, I have people from all races, colors, and creeds on there. Joel was on my show. So it's like, I don't really put myself in the box and say it's only for black people or only for African-Americans. But I also realize that um, I have a voice in the space where people kind of look to me to kind of hear some insight on Bitcoin coming from that community. So it's always good to have this multitude of podcasts because um, you have like some big players in the game right now that have huge podcasts, huge followings, huge subscribers. But I've always found like, there's a saying I always say like underdogs do win. And mm. I think that podcasts such as the one that I'm on now with you guys, like I listen to a few episodes from you guys and I find it um, 
very insightful because you guys don't have the same amount of pressure, right? Like there's not like a ton of sponsors like motivating you or trying to alternate the way that you convey your message. And I always find that that's more authentic to me. So I'm always looking for those different podcasts that aren't as big. They have good quality guests. The the hosts are articulate. They know how to pose questions in the right way. So for me personally, I don't really think that um, a lot of podcasts are too much because that's the whole entire point of Bitcoin, which is to orange pill as many people as you can get this information out to diverse communities from all over, whether it's the UK, France, Africa, the US, you're going to have different demographics and different people that have different point of view. So I think that it's perfect that we have so many podcasts out there and it just keeps the competition high and it makes people have to kind of um, break through these different barriers to get their voices heard. And in the end of the day, you know, it's all about perspective because every one of us brings different perspectives to the table. And I think, I don't know if this is because mainly our, let's call it Bitcoin media landscape is, you know, Nostra, Bitcoin Twitter, these kind of places. And like you mentioned, Bitcoin Magazine and, and the likes. And obviously a lot of that gets lost in translation if, you know, tweet online versus you're in person. And I know I'm not very popular with this opinion, but I think we should clash more on these platforms and actually get more engaging in our discussions. Because um, I had this last time I was in Lugano at the conference. I ran into someone who I know I've had many clashes on Twitter and then actually realizing in person, yeah, maybe we are the way we are online, but there, there's more to that story than has to be told. And I think we sat down for like 35 minutes, had a coffee, you know, no one hit anyone, no one attacked anyone, everything was fine. But uh, you sort of sat there and were able to realize what was going on. And uh, yeah, I agree. We need more shows, podcasts, and we need more of these cultures to clash in a positive sense as well. Because this is only how you realize like, oh, so it is actually quite easy for us to, I don't know, use this service, for example, and you guys don't even have access to it. If we would always agree with each other, I think we would never get to that conclusion and inevitably, hopefully, find better solutions to 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 improve these situations. But not only that, um, before you uh, um, answer that or have a comment, I just wanted to sort of say as well, I think people get locked into a mindset without actually being open to new ideas and perspectives from people, right? And this reminds me of the time, and I mentioned this to Joel, when, when, my, wife, when my wife came along to the Bitcoin meetup with me fairly recently, and um, she, she's from America, she's, she's black, and uh, she sort of went there with me just because um, there was a particular guest there. And I thought, oh, you might be interested in, in speaking with this person. And she was kind of like um, bombarded with the question, are you a Bitcoiner? And then she was like, okay, this is like a little bit kind of coming on strong in some sort of way. Um, but I know the good intentions that people have. And essentially, basically, she had these white men coming up to her, sort of preaching the fact that the system is broken and how it's broken she's like dude are you fucking kidding me this has been my life experience and you know we've been signaling in this for many years and now you're just awakened and telling us that you know now you see um what the system really is so i think that's that's um important that we need to sort of um not um you know continue to sort of like bang the same drum in the same way because you know that's just going to put a, a, you know a section of people off from the message that we're trying to put out there as well yeah, I have to agree with that. And, you know, more power to your wife, because it is very difficult to be, you know, a black woman, not only in the US, but the UK, anywhere in the world, you know, honestly. And when you look at 
the traditional forms of finance, when you look at the traditional forms of generating wealth and you look at the statistics, you see who's kind of been ahead of that race and who has kind of been delayed in that race. And for me personally, I think that Bitcoin is one of those things it doesn't solve everything. It doesn't fix everything, but it actually gives people the first opportunity to be on an equal playing field where race doesn't matter, affluence doesn't matter, privilege doesn't matter. You really just have to kind of find yourself in a position where are you going to educate yourself? Are you going to get in as early as possible? Are you going to hold? And then are you going to give back? And I always tell people giving back is important and you can do that in many forms like you guys are doing with this podcast, educating, writing articles, going to meetups, you know, giving some of your free time out to kind of help people learn or um, promote different things in the Bitcoin space. I think all of these things are very instrumental. So, um, you know, getting back to like my podcast, The Bitcoin Source, when people go on there, a lot of times when people see the logo or they see the page, they don't even know that the host is African-American, right? And um, sometimes that can be a good thing or that can be a bad thing. But I kind of did that in a way where I don't want people to focus on me because it's really not about me. It's about sourcing this information and getting this information out to the masses. And sometimes people can say like, oh, well, um, I, you know, Lamar Wilson, who is a good friend of mine, the founder of Black Bitcoin Billionaires, we've had discussions about um, being people being like kind of hung up on the title Black Bitcoin Billionaires. And he always tells me, he's like, people always come to me and say, why is everything about race? And he says that people never come to him and say, hey, I can't get into to the club because I'm not a billionaire. Right. So it's like, it's just the way that people's mind think sometimes. And I think that it's really not about race. It's not about color or creed. It's just about Bitcoin. It's about Bitcoin. The last statement in that club's called is Bitcoin, black Bitcoin billionaire. So it's like, people just have to realize that um, different perspectives help different people and not everybody's going to kind of absorb the information the way that you would traditionally get from like a, what Bitcoin did or some of these other avenues, because, you know, a three hour podcast is a lot to digest for some people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. And we've also started shifting this even in our own content. Um, you know, as someone who's also content writing, like, uh, my laptop is weird. I consume way too much content and I have so many links saved everywhere because this is part of my job. And we decided, hey, instead of, you know, we put out the shows as a video, as audio, and we also now want to focus more on these short segments because that's the amount of time people have in the day and you sort of have to go where people at, right? Um, but then at the, second, at, the, at the same time, it's what you say, Okay, maybe having some catchy titles somewhere like Black Bitcoin Billionaire obviously is something where people will click, right? Yeah. So that's the intention of it as well. But I don't think this is a bad thing because at one point we have to play the um, the attention game and get people in. And from that, then actually use these different content formats to to orange pill. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested in two things. You said you came out from, um, God forbid, JP Morgan Chase. Um, and you then went into also freelance writing. Was that right after each other or were you like working throughout the day and at night hustling or how did that emerge? Yeah. So I was kind of doing a little bit of both. Like I was doing my traditional nine to five and then I would like go home and freelance. Um, I've actually published a couple books too. And it was weird. I mean, Joel, you might be able to relate to this because you're a writer, but um, anytime like I had a summer off or I had like a span of time to write, I was like, I'm not going to write articles. Like I want to challenge myself. Like I'm going to write a book, like in a book, if you're a writer writing a book, people think it's easy, 
it is a lot of work and you're always in your head, right? Like you'll read your own work and like, oh, this isn't good enough. I'm going to scrap it. So that's why sometimes it takes people so long to write books. And my outlet for Bitcoin was like, okay, I can write for Bitcoin magazine and I can submit an article and they have editors there. And at the time, CK was um kind of like running the show at the time. And he was very open to having different writers in the space. So that kind of gave me some confidence as well. And on top of my freelance stuff and like every time I got an article submitted and people would like retweet it or say like, hey, this article really um, helped me learn something about Bitcoin. It just kind of boosted my writing ego even more. And it was it allowed me to kind of really just get into a space where I was open and I felt like people would embrace me because a lot of Bitcoiners can be very fickle. So if you're a writer and you say something that's not the right thing or something that they don't agree with, you talk about a side chain, you talk about Ethereum, God forbid, like you could be nailed to the cross, right? So it was always that kind of pressure being a writer in the space because it forced you to be very informed on Bitcoin, know what the trends are in the market, know what's going on in the public square so that you can kind of relay that message to people in the space so that they can feel comfortable, trust you, and know that you have a proof of work in the, in the industry. That, very good point. I mean, especially as a writer, you know, uh, I wouldn't, yes, there are Bitcoin journalists out there, but compared to the modern journalism system, if you want to call it, like, we're basically all opinion writers. We have yeah. our opinions, we share them. Some of us do it very uh, very um, convincing and they have arguments and all of these things. And then others are a bit maybe more, you know, technical side and all of these things. But at the end of the day, it's opinions that we share and we have to essentially build a new system out of these opinions. Um, and I think it's healthy that we sometimes throw these weird ideas into the mix. Um, and if I remember, because I looked up behind the, the articles you wrote a bit on Bitcoin Magazine, it's it's not tough to find, thank God. Um, you, like you said, you really try different ways of finding out who is actually my audience. As a writer or someone that creates content, are you also afraid to have like audience capture that sometimes you, you, you do produce something fully knowing... I might not agree with this, but like I do it to to get the numbers up, to to continue speaking to people, or is that something you can basically ignore? Um, I try not to, but you know what I've learned being a writer of all these years is that um, journalism is kind of one of those things where you have to be comfortable and free to write your truth, right? And sometimes your truth might not be the truth that other people agree with, and it's just a part of journalism. I feel like when your journalism or your writing is suppressed or you're under pressure that someone might judge you, you're not going to write in the most authentic way that you possibly could. So that's why I love Bitcoin, because Bitcoiners are already coming from a place or an audience where we kind of stand on common ground. Like There's a few things that we might not agree on, but as a whole, we really stand on common ground. And I found that that was so liberating for me, because um, if you're writing about politics, politics or race or classism, it can kind of throw you into these rabbit holes of, you know, people that have been entrenched in these kind of ideologies for centuries versus Bitcoin being so new, a little bit over a decade old, you're kind of in this fresh energy where people are like, okay, we want this thing to go to the moon. We want to get this to as many people as possible. And being a writer in that moment is just so liberating and so freeing. And I'm sure that you can relate to that, Joel, as well. One thing um, that I think is special about the whole being a Bitcoiner thing is that if you um, are having a conversation with a fellow Bitcoiner or you're on Twitter and you're, you're, you're sort of checking the comments and you're looking at all the posts and things like that, um, 
people are more willing to offer you their valuable finite time because you are identifying um, with them as a Bitcoin. So you both understand the fundamentals of Bitcoin in some way. And I think that sort of um, puts people in a place where they're more willing to offer their time to sort of take in your content in in a way as well. Um, but one thing you were saying uh, about the intention or uh, wanting to maybe write a book, I sometimes just fantasize and romanticize about, oh, that would make a good book. And sometimes I sit in a place contemplating whether or not that would uh, be something that I can manifest and have the time to dedicate towards. And ultimately it comes down to me do I have e enough passion in what it is I'm thinking about right now and energy and time? And I'm just wondering whether you, you shared that kind of journey um, similar to what I did in my mind about contemplating whether I should write something. And um, what was the message that you wanted to put out there to dedicate your time and energy to in the book? Most definitely. So for me, I wrote two books based on Bitcoin. The first one was the bid on digital coins. And then the second one was actually an overview of my experience, kind of being like this observer or journalist in the Black Bitcoin Billionaire Clubhouse. Like I sat in those rooms for a year and I listened to people like Charlene Federipo, Lamar Wilson, the Bitcoin vegan, um, Bitcoin Zay, all these different people teaching people in the community. And just to look at the Clubhouse app and see so many different people. Um, Corey from Swan used to be in those rooms. Um, we had Jack Dorsey sitting in those rooms back in those days and the early pandemic days. And it was just like, as a Bitcoiner being new, it was like, whoa, this is like a movement. Like, I'm sure you guys can relate, like during the pandemic, when people were locked down and like people were in that space where they really didn't know what was going to happen the next week or the next month, like I saw Bitcoiners kind of like transform. It was like the most authentic, like open like open kind of like diverse space I've ever been in where people were like really promoting everybody, everybody that put out a podcast, everybody that put out a blog was like being super lifted up. And that was just like a great space to be in. But to answer your question, I really think that um, we're in a space and time now where people have to really be as authentic, authentic as they can be because there's so much like FUD out there. There's so much like, different avenues for people to kind of like be gimmicky. And yes, you can do things for clickbait, but I really think it boils down to the volume of content that you're creating. And also, are you authentic? Can people relate to these episodes and these podcasts? And a year from now, when the price goes up and people are going to be hungry coming into the space, they're going to look at this podcast and say like, what's rabbit hole stories? Like, what is this about? Let's check this out. They watch two or three episodes and they might be hooked. You might have a fan for life now. And I think that if you're gimmicky or you just do things with clickbait, most of your clientele will see through that after a few episodes. We are literally before you came into the room to record, we actually did um, um, another intro for another episode and we were like, you know, we just keep recording and we'll think about the same things we say because we can clip it into shorts and all of these things. And we actually had the point where we went, um, how good is it to be fully authentic so ian went like oh you know sometimes i'm just like rabbit hole deep philosophical and and i just go i've dropped so many f-bombs on this show i think i should have been censored on youtube a long time ago but you know thank god they didn't um but this is the way i if i go out into the real world if i speak to cab drivers if i go out into you know train stations this is what you pick up so why should we change this if we're if we're out there fully knowing 
if monetization sponsorships and these things becomes an option you know this puts people more off but um hey we're in it to actually get people in and not like you know make money from the sponsors because this wouldn't feel right anyway um but it's fascinating that sort of dynamic you have to jump through it's a shame that i missed the clubhouse days in the early days because I uh, mainly used to cover for a think tank I used to work for back then, the tech uh, clubhouse, uh, you know, talks with like Jason Calacanis and these guys. And after sitting in them for six hours, I just basically capturing what they said. I was done. I said at the end of the day, I don't need to listen to any clubhouse anymore. Um, but yeah, it's cool to, I think if you still log on to clubhouse these days, even there's still a couple of rooms active who are pretty much engaging, although you can technically do the same thing on Twitter. Um Moving on to what you do with the podcast, did the podcast idea come out of you being in those clubhouse rooms and going like, hey, I want to do something uh, on my own terms? Or how did uh, the Bitcoin source eventually come about? Yeah, so the Bitcoin source kind of appertains to the value that I want to create for my audience, right? So as a writer, I found that, okay, I might have... 2000 people read this article via Bitcoin magazine, but I always felt like the impact could be larger, right? And funny story. So there was a book that I actually grabbed called Hook Point, Living in a Three Second World. And it talked about in the book, it, it pretty much encompassed that um, because of social media, because of instant gratification, TikTok, the human attention span is about three seconds. So I use that book to kind of maximize, like, how do I get more people to pay attention to Bitcoin? They might not have the patience or the attention span to read an article on Bitcoin magazine. And I know that a lot of people are more visual now. They might want to put their headphones in and like while they're going on a jog or eating lunch, they might just listen to a podcast. So initially I was like, oh, I'm going to take my articles and I'm going to convert those into podcast episodes. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. But then that means I have to write more articles to keep the podcast sustaining. Right. So the Bitcoin source kind of came from me writing about so many people in this space, connecting with them through Bitcoin Magazine, I was like, those people that I've connected with, I'm actually going to interview those people and get a different perspective from them outside of writing. And then that kind of like grew into this huge following. And like, I ended up having people on my podcast that I never thought I would have had people that I looked up to in the space, like Jimmy Song, um, Jeff Booth was on there. I had Brian DeMint. I had like all these different people and they really were just generally excited to have these conversations with me because they knew my skill set when it came to writing. So um, I always tell you guys too, like, it's always someone in the space where they talk about like slay your heroes. And there's always like someone that you initially look up to in the space. And for me, um, Alex Gladstein wrote a piece, which in my personal opinion is probably the best piece ever written on Bitcoin magazine. It was called Bitcoin is a Trojan horse. If people haven't read it, I'm telling you, I read that piece and I was like, okay, this encompasses like everything. I mean, he used like historical facts and he just like tied it in so perfectly. And I was like, this is what it's about. Like as a writer, I was like, I was just like gleaming. I was like, okay, how do we kind of translate that into the podca podcast form? And how do we get more people to listen? So when I see podcasts such as this one and all the other ones that are coming out, it's like people don't realize that a new class of Bitcoiners is coming out every day, every year, every month. So you don't know who you can impact, whose lives you can change by just having these simple conversations about Bitcoin. One thing that I think we need, when you said slay your heroes, one thing uh, that popped into my, my mind that I mentioned the other day as well was um, the whole slay your heroes thing is sometimes we get fixated on um, a voice and 
don't look at it critically as we go along listening to that voice so we we tend to just sort of go with what they say and 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 um maybe uh, think that's truth because of their reputation over time but i think we should always remain critical to anything they say and challenge things that we don't agree with because you know particularly if they're and i've used jeff booth the other day for an example with a tweet so i'm bringing him up again he's going to get annoyed with us but just because you like the price of tomorrow and you like the content he's putting out there it doesn't necessarily mean that everything he's going to say forever is going to be true and right so we should you know hold that into account as well because we, we i think we've got a temptation to idealize people um and sometimes we can get lost in that kind of um uh, signal um, without actually looking at other perspectives. So I don't know if that's something that you've um, personally experienced. But also one thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, for me, Bitcoin has profoundly changed me in many different ways. And we can, you know, I can talk about how it has uh, forever. But I'm wondering how um, it's changed you, if at all, and what that might have been. Yeah, Bitcoin has changed me in a number of ways where for me, like I've always wanted to be more community based, like how do I impact my community? How do I give back? Right. I talked about giving back a lot. And I think like being an American or being in like a more privileged position than most of the population on the planet, just from where I'm born and located, I always wanted to find a way to give back, but it be in this more authentic manner. And once I really started to delve into Bitcoin and understand the benefits and how it can provide freedom for billions of people, I was like, okay, this is something that I want to immerse myself into. This is something that I really want to dedicate my life to. And I think that a lot of people that are in this space are still trying to figure it out. You talked about slaying heroes. Like when you first come in the space, you always want to look for a mentor. You always want to look for someone that kind of aligns with your incentives so that you can look towards them and kind of grab as much information from them as possible. But as you become more involved in the space and you start to really understand Bitcoin from your own perspective, that's when you're able to slay your hero and say, okay, what do I want to do in this space? Okay, it's cool. I have followers on Twitter. People retweet my stuff. I talk about Bitcoin all day long, but what do I want to do to kind of differentiate myself in this space and make myself unique? And I think that when you start to give back and you start to help people, that's when you truly start to win. That's when you truly start to actually become a value to the community. And that involves, you know, asking or answering the the not so comfortable questions, right? We we actually had the moment um, half past twelve, half past eleven in Amsterdam, Ian, when we sat at our hotel bar, and I was like, you know what? Today at this conference, we had a lot of like own smart felling in the Bitcoin community, uh, smelling in the Bitcoin community. There was a lot of like, you know, patting on our backs and such. And I kind of went, yeah. When I got in, we were really critical at these meetups. You know, sometimes there would be beef between between people who would be like a developer, the marketer, or something. Um, and I just put that question out there, and there wasn't a lot of resonance. But I think the more people get in who sort of look at this and go okay, for it to be a replacement, an improvement, whatever you want to call it, from the old system, at one point we also have to ask or answer the uncomfortable things. Um, and speaking of those, if you look at the community these days, is there anything you wish, if you had a magic uh, wand or anything, that we can improve right now? What would that be? Would that be something in, in the way we communicate ourselves? Would that be um, a specific use case in, in Lightning or something like this? Or if you could change it right now, what would you do? Um, there's a couple of things. But I think the first thing is that we need more opportunities in the job space for Bitcoin. And I know that that fluctuates with 
the price and the downtrends of the market. But I think that companies, and there's a few companies that are doing this, there's definitely, we need more diversity within these Bitcoin companies. Because when people say they Google Bitcoin, the first thing that comes into their mind is like Michael Saylor or something. People that have already generated tons of wealth. And for me personally, I think that Bitcoin is about the underdog. Bitcoin is about the person coming from a working class family, coming from a nine to five job, never had, never owned a home, never had real estate, never had the opportunity to let their money and their sweat equity actually work for them because inflation eats away at it, bad credit eats away at it, or not having the opportunities to have an education or to have a good job eats away at that. And I think that Bitcoin removes a lot of those issues. And when we look at all these companies, podcasts, whatever the case may be, it's always easier if you can pay someone in Bitcoin, right? It's always easier if you can open up the doors for people coming from underserved communities to be involved and entrenched in this space. Because I learned a long time ago that if you're trying to impact the most people, you have to start at the base, which is always the broadest part. So the base is always where you have people that might not really connect with a Michael Saylor because they're not billionaires, but they might have insight or value that you've never untapped before because you've never decided to look into that community. And people have to realize that over time, the Bitcoin space is going to continue to change or people are fighting about ordinals. People are fighting about the way that lightning's going or taproot. So it's like, there's always going to be these different innovations. And I think that's just a part of the growing pain of the protocol. And I think over time, through consensus and other things that will just overcome these things. And it's always good to have a difference of opinion because that keeps the protocol um, not, you know, not stagnant and it keeps it being in a place of an ever evolving like organism. When you were mentioning Old Noise, it reminded me of our time in Amsterdam, Joel, when we went to that Old Noise party um, after the conference. And it was amazing, um, mainly probably because I just had a, a joint and I was a little bit kind of well, high. But we also have to... We also have to be honest, it was a fucking amazing party, like super cool Mate, venue. And the booth we was all free, walked in and we and were, were like, kind of paid. people yeah. came with canapes. I was like, well, where are we? Like, <laughs> this is amazing. I love ordinals now. <laughs> <laughs> but, we're into contemporary art now. <laughs> yeah, but that's the, that's the thing that it, 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 I connected with the sort of like the hatred towards uh, ordinals. But really, there's a whole community here. There's like, there was like a, a, a room, a huge room full of people that are passionate about ordinals and believe that they it, you know it can work for bitcoin and you know for a fundamental thing that they, they can sort of build on and i think we need that kind of enthusiasm that uh, recognition that there are different communities within the bitcoin ecosystem if you like so we're already kind of forming uh, identities within that space and we just need to i think embrace the fact that Bitcoin is for everyone, uh, we need to sort of invite um, people from all walks of life into the space and, and it will work itself out with the sort of uh, secure layer that is Bitcoin underneath it. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I'm a fan of like, as long as you don't really mess with the base layer, you know, I'm not really concerned because it's like a tree, right? Like you can trim the tree, you can decorate the tree, paint the tree, but as long as you don't mess with the roots of the tree, it'll work itself out. It'll grow yeah, back, 100%. it'll change, it'll evolve. Yeah. Totally. And I think as long as you play by consensus rules, you're technically not doing anything wrong. And, you know, I, I've spoke, I, I had the same idea as Ian had. I was like, okay, I'll go in with an open mind because I'm definitely not an NFT bro. Yeah. And it, it takes a lot of conviction for me to go like, okay, we need to inscribe data onto something that should be a backbone of, let's just call it a financial system. Um, 
But I've spoken to these people and they had to commit months of, you know, what is a UTXO? How, how do these things work? If they went into the um, research site on lightning and how they can potentially also have like, the same technique on lightning, um, they really committed a lot of time and effort. And, and this is how we get there. And one ordinal guy told me, you know, um, yes, I might be interesting in that speculation aspect of the, of the uh, price of my artwork going up. But isn't that what we also do with the with the uh, Bitcoin price, in essence? So, you know, there was a lot of overlap where I thought, OK, as long as they play along, like you said, I think we're safe. Um, and yeah, they were surprisingly open to, you know, they've never used Lightning. I showed one guy how to use Phoenix and he goes like, oh, this is cool. I might actually pay for my coffee tomorrow. And if we have these little interactions, I think um, the hyper Bitcoinization might be just around the corner and we might just at the end of our lifetime see it because um, that's how we get, again, enough people into the space, right? Yes, most definitely. I mean, look at look at El Salvador, right? Look at some of these other places that are kind of starting to adopt Bitcoin. And I think what's really going to be interesting as well is that uh, for 2024, we're going to have a halving coming up. We're going to have possibly an ETF coming up. So I think for people that have been in this space for quite some time, this next year is going to be a different ball game. We're going to see a different attitude towards Bitcoin. And then we're going to be able to sit back and say, hey, we were right this whole time. <laughs> 100%. And obviously, we've just had that sort of price spike uh, in the positive direction recently. And you can always, you can tell already the the appetite for this um, sudden explosion of the Bitcoin price. Um, and there is some, um, well, some, more than some talk about the Bitcoin ETF um, when, when it's going to be approved and things like that. And I'm all for sort of um, being on board with that discussion um, about what ETF is. Is it good or bad for Bitcoin? Um, and I'm just wondering whether you've got any sort of uh, thoughts or feelings about BlackRock introducing um, Bitcoin onto their balance sheets and, and whether you see it as a good thing, a bad thing, bullish or bearish for Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm kind of like 50-50 on it. So my old banker traditional mindset is saying it's good because the baby boomers, the people that are not open to buying a digital wallet, using Strike, using Cash App to buy Bitcoin, they might feel more comfortable having it in their 401k, having it in a retirement fund and just having BlackRock kind of do self-custody and take care of it. But the Bitcoiner in me is saying, well, why buy into an ETF when you can buy directly from the source, directly from Bitcoin itself and not have to worry about having an ETF? Because when it's time to liquidate your money, are you going to have access to your Bitcoin or do they have the private keys? So just for me being a millennial, being younger and understanding where this protocol is truly meant to be and where it's truly meant to go, like I'm not sure that Satoshi was thinking about an ETF because when you had Occupy Wall Street and some of these other things that were going on that kind of was in the formulation of Bitcoin coming to be, he was kind of directly, he, she, or they, I should say, was kind of directly against things like that, against ETFs and different um, financial institutions kind of dabbling into Bitcoin. So um, I think it's good because if you're a holder of Bitcoin, the ETF is going to obviously push the price up, which is going to bring more value to your coffers. But as a Bitcoiner myself, I think that it's just better to buy Bitcoin directly or to share Bitcoin pair to pair. If I bring some value to this podcast, this podcast brings some value to me. I should be able to go on Geyser Fund or send you guys a Lightning Network channel and say, hey, I support you guys. Here's some Satoshis. I think that that's more authentic than buying into an ETF. 100%. And I think this is very much comparable to gold and like, oh, trick a word for like hardcore Bitcoin maxis out there. Yes. 
uh, gold also exists. Um, you had the same issues. The ETFs came in, the, the, the price fucking spiked like crazy because obviously what happened, the famous 274 or 5, I think is now the ish, uh, ratio from paper gold to physical gold. And that exploded, you know, it got manipulated like crazy, which was inevitable. But there's a very large part in that community that holds physical gold, that actually embraces, you know, the, the scarcity and all of these things of the asset itself. And I kind of see Bitcoin evolving into the the same, um, the well down the same road, essentially. Um, but I'm also, I have spoken to some banks in Switzerland, especially who, you know, they all told me, we privately, every banker, we hold Bitcoin the way you're supposed to hold it. A guy even had every one of his Satoshis in multi-six, which I was like, okay, that, that's crazy. Like, you know, he really went the hardcore way. But they told us it's it's impossible for us as a bank to hold it directly for customers and offer it unless for now we go this ETF road. And, you know, who's to say like how Finney once said on the um, Bitcoin talk forum, there might be Bitcoin banks in the future who will build further assets on Bitcoin. We see this with like taproot assets and these things that come alive and offer these things or RGB and um, potentially form some sort of a hybrid there. And I think if we get more people in and we then have them here that they look for Bitcoin, we can then go, right, you now owe paper Bitcoin and now read this book, listen to this podcast, watch that show to fully understand why you need to go that extra mile um, and, you know, protect yourself against inflation, a corrupt government, whatever the issues are, you get into Bitcoin and, uh, you know, do the whole journey. And I think this in the long run is good for us. And obviously the price thing you said, but yeah, it definitely will be, will be interesting. And I think... I already have it in my content plan for 24. I will be writing a lot about custodial Bitcoin, non-custodial Bitcoin and ETF Bitcoin. So, you know, it's one more thing to to talk and write about. Um, but hey, if that gets us there, I'm I'm all I'm full on all for it. Yep. And I have one more thought on that, too. Just just hearing you say that, Joel. Um, I think a lot of companies are looking at micro strategy and they're looking at how Bitcoin is being placed on their balance sheet and how it's kind of kept the micro strategy stock robust. Right. So I think the ETF like Grayscale and some of these other ones, Fidelity, a lot of these companies will buy into the shares of the ETF and it kind of backs and props up their own stock. So I think yep. that it helps them too, because we know the stock market has its own fluctuations, but we also know that the stock market is highly propped up and Bitcoin kind of gives yep. more validity to it through the ETF. So that's definitely a corporate play all the way. Yes. And I mean, the, the, this is something good that you brought that in and then I'll hand it over to Ian. Um, why did Sailor get on board with Bitcoin? Because they knew with a potential huge recession coming out of the money printing in the um, earlier lockdown days, we have to find an asset that protects our shareholders. So he had to protect the price of the share. And if you look, the minute they bought the first amount of Bitcoin to today, that stock price is super up in 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 the green and yes he may be at at some point he was at a net loss with in terms of his bitcoin investment but you know guess what a he's never selling and b he actually fulfilled the promise he made to his shareholders at that shareholders meeting in i think it was may 2020 where he said we're buying it to actually protect the asset as a hedge against the coming recession um 
and I think the more people will get this on in that kind of world and landscape, the the better. And apparently, like Eric Weiss is also super influential in this, that he goes actually to these meetings and explains it to high net worth individuals and company directors and such, that it's not only a an interesting asset from a monetary standpoint, but all of the volatility, but actually also a great tool to protect your shareholders. And with that, I'll hand it over to Ian. No, I'm just wondering if you've got a comment to make about what Joe just said. Uh, no, I think that, I mean, I agree with you. Well, I think that uh, really at the point that we're at now, I think you're going to start to see more companies starting to follow that strategy because it just makes sense. It just makes sense because you have like this responsibility to your shareholders and every quarter, every annual meeting that you have, like you have to perform. And like, if you're a CEO or you're a CFO of a company, if you're at Apple, for example, no matter what, you have to sell an X amount of iPhones to keep that stock high, X amount of MacBooks to keep that stock high. When there's downtrends in the market, recessions, people don't have the funds to spend 1500 quid on an iPhone or something. So they're going to go back to the lowest common denominator. They're worrying about groceries, bills, the necessities. So companies are looking at that. They're paying attention. They saw what happened during the pandemic when Amazon seemed to be the only company that was making money and everybody else was was kind of like floundering around. They probably were telling themselves like, hey, if we had bought into Bitcoin, put this on our balance sheet, all these losses could have been considered a write-off. So we still would have ended up being in the green. So I think companies are paying attention to that now. And they're like, okay, this ETF makes sense because it's just easier for us to buy into it, not have to buy a million dollars of Bitcoin directly, deal with the tax issues, deal with the SEC. We can buy into an instrument that's already approved by the SEC and it makes our life super easy. That reminds me of the recent episode we had with Leon about real estate and him actually introducing Bitcoin, on, Bitcoin onto his balance sheets as a hedge against um, inflation and um, increasing costs in order to sustain his business long term. And uh, what you just said, so obviously you've just verified that kind of strategy is as a good thing when you introduce Bitcoin into your business in that way and uh, one thing i'm curious about is obviously um the the most recent um financial crisis was in 2008 and it was the housing crisis and people were talking about a potential um upcoming financial crisis and they're calling it the everything bubble and i'm just wondering whether you've um, had any thoughts about how that might play out or if that is even gonna happen in 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 reality within the near future yes i mean i'm not an expert on this but i've had conversations with people like greg foss who's been in the game for i don't know 20 30 something years as a you know a bond expert and you know, he always said, like, pay attention to the bond market. Like when you see people selling off bonds or you see the bond market ready to explode, I think that that's going to be the next thing that we're going to see coupled with real estate and everything. Because as people start to lose confidence in, in treasuries and stuff like that, treasury notes, I think that that's going to be a red flag. And we're spending money like crazy, whether it's the UK, the US, it seems like everybody's going to war now, like all this stuff requires money and funding. And it's like, insane to see how, you know, the cost of petrol is a certain amount or the cost of eggs is a certain amount. You turn the news on and it's like, you're spending a billion on what? Like mm -hmm. we need people here in this country and in other places that work hard every day, bust their ass, make sure that they can support their family. And it's like, there's no reason why you have to decide whether you can eat lunch or put petrol in your car. Like in this current society with all the technology we have, all the resources we have. And I think that that's why Bitcoin is going to end up being the winner when people realize like, hey, I can't trust 
that the banking institutions are going to really support me and help me through my hard times because the bank doesn't care if you don't have a job. If you owe a mortgage, they're going to come and take your house and you'll be on the street. There is no like feelings there, right? And I think that Bitcoin is going to have people looking at it like, oh, if I buy into Bitcoin instead of buying three or four bonds, I know at least the network of people that support Bitcoin will continue to keep that propped up. The more companies that put it on the balance sheet, the more people that are holding long-term will always keep the value high. And then, oh, what else? There's a four-year halving. So no matter what happens, the value is always going to increase every four years because it becomes less valuable. There's more scarcity. And I think that scarcity always brings value. And that's the, that's the trump card that people are not realizing. Like gold is great. But we didn't, we don't really know how much gold is in the Earth's crust, right? But we do know that there's only 21 million. And you can stick to that number for the next 100 and something years as long as the mining process keeps going. And that in itself is going to keep people really aware, like, okay, every four years, even if I just sit on it, I know every four years is going to go up in value. I can't guarantee that's going to happen with the stock or with my equity in my house if I buy into a loan right now or a mortgage. It's funny you mentioned Greg Foss because I couldn't help ignore the do the math uh, quote uh, that yeah, he's famous for um, whenever he's uh, speaking. But um, it, it kind of um, reminded me of if you look back at history, uh, we've all converged on what is uh, value and, and what we find valuable in society. And we've converged on gold. Right. And uh, we, 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 we kind of know the history and the dark history that in, involves in um, sort of um, where that gold has come from and how um, how the powerful have now obtained it. And that's I, the way I see it, how Bitcoin can be different from uh, that. And ultimately, as as um, a world and as a human race, we're going to converge on on something like Bitcoin in the future um, as, as the actual true value, because we can actually prove that it's finite and all the rest of the elements that it, it's got. Um, I don't know if you've got a comment about that, but I was yeah, going yeah, to say a, a shameless plug, right? So go for it. in between 2017, I also was kind of like a gold bug because of course I was a banker. So it like made sense to me. And I actually wrote a book about gold called Cover Me in Gold. It's on Amazon. Cool. And I went through the entire history of gold because I was like trying to, I was in this weird space at the moment where I was like, okay, is Bitcoin better than gold or is gold better than Bitcoin? And I did super amounts of studying on this thing. I bought books. I did my research. I went to the library. And I agree with you, Ian. Like, I think that a lot of times gold is like the old version of Bitcoin. Like if we, um, the, the rich dad, poor dad guy, he always talks about how he bought gold in 1970 for $10 an ounce or something like that. And it's like, dude, I was born in the 80s. I wasn't even alive to have those opportunities. So Bitcoin is kind of like the new opportunity for us as a generation to getting at these cheap prices. So when we're in our 60s, we can sit back and say, do you remember when Bitcoin was 33,000? Do you remember when it was 40,000? And people are going to look at us like we were like the luckiest people in the world. So yes, I agree with that. Brilliant. Thank you for agreeing with me. Um, <laughs> as you know, we end our episodes with the all roads lead back to Bitcoin question because we want to prove and verify that that is true. Um, so we give our guests at the end of the show a word, a phrase or subject that they can try and relate that back to Bitcoin somehow. And um, I think um, considering all the discussions we've had here, I think it might be uh, a good one to bring up the word privilege and how that can relate back to Bitcoin. Most definitely privilege can relate back to Bitcoin in a number of ways. So I think on the side of people that have privilege, 
it is always best for them to give back as much as possible, educate people as much as possible, and be in a position to say, okay, I have X amount of Bitcoin or I have X amount of value in the space. How do I become a beacon for people that don't have that privilege? And I think for people that are on the other side, flip side of that coin that are looking for privilege, Bitcoin can be the thing that can give it to you. It can give you that freedom that you have been looking for your whole entire life or generationally. Fantastic answer. And I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to uh, spend time in doing is um, listening to historic voices from different perspectives, from different backgrounds, and reading the material and, and, and the struggles that people over uh, the world have, have um, suffered and, and how that can um, sort of help me understand what language I need to use moving forward. Um, and I think it's important to reflect um, on my own privilege as a, as a white mid middle-aged man um, and use that privilege in some way to try to um, understand different perspectives that um, I haven't always been able to hear or understand. Um, so that's, that's how um, I'm moving forward into this space. And I don't know if you want to say anything, either one of you about that, or whether you share that kind of um, reflection, Joel, yourself. Maybe this is again the thing with authenticity. You're much more deeply thinking there than you are. I do it. It's very simple. If I know if I know someone who doesn't own enough Bitcoin, I'll make sure that they get more. Um, that's sort of how I look at this. Um, because it's like that we said. If 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 they lack interest, uh, if they lack resources, it's up to us to bridge that gap. And if I can help out this way, um, I know it's easier uh, than you know. Stick it to whatever you want to do, race, where you come from in the world, whatever. Um, that's sort of my filter. If you don't own enough Bitcoin, I'll make sure you do. And if you don't want to own it, I'll wait a few years, you know, you'll you'll come by. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, my thoughts on that initially is you guys are doing it right now. A lot of times orange pilling people can be difficult. Like when you meet someone in a coffee shop or you see someone on the street and you talk about Bitcoin, if their brain is immersed in the FUD or their brain is immersed in mainstream media, it can kind of be off-putting for someone to just approach you about Bitcoin. But what you could do is say, hey, I have a podcast. I have articles like on your free time when you're alone and by yourself, like check out what we have to say. And that in itself is going to help so many people. You guys don't realize who you're helping just by having these conversations and having this podcast. So I think even by just being a podcaster, being a writer, being a Bitcoiner, you're doing your part as long as you're putting in that proof of work and adding value to the ecosystem. Perfect. And obviously, as are you guys doing your own um, podcast and your own signal. And um, it's been a pleasure having you. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, my mouth is dry AF and I need a glass of water. So I'm going to end this episode here. It's been a pleasure. So thank you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure too. Likewise.